The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Welcome back. We are in a continuing study of John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, if you'd be so kind to open them to John chapter 5. We're continuing to look at this particular miracle that Jesus performed, this particular sign, the healing at the pool near Bethesda, and the consequences of this event. Uh, One of the things that I find particularly remarkable about the Gospel of John is that fully half of this Gospel is given over to just the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, You'll see that as you read through all four of the Gospels that a disproportionate amount of space is given over to just that period of time between the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his death and resurrection a week later. And that is especially true, as I said, with John, who gives fully half of his narrative over to just the last seven days of Jesus' life. Now, that's extraordinary when you consider the fact that Jesus lived on this earth for approximately 33 years. He was active in public ministry for perhaps three years, and fully half of the narrative is given over to just the last seven days. That tells us that this is really the focus of Jesus' life and work, his death and his resurrection. So we're still, chronologically at least, early on in the narrative, and yet we can already begin to see the storm clouds gathering on the horizon. And the storm clouds, of course, are the opposition that Jesus is facing from the Jewish religious leaders, in particular, the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, You'll notice, if you look at verse 18, that it says, this was why the Jews, and we said that in John's gospel, that term Jews is not a reference to the people ethnically, it is a reference to the religious leaders in particular, but it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. If you read the other gospels, you get the idea that early on, what the Jewish religious leaders want to do is simply discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. Make him out to be a fool if possible. And so they come with all of these trick questions with the intention of entrapping him. But here in John's gospel, we find that they have given up any hope of simply discrediting Jesus. Most of the time when they tried to trick Jesus or put one of these questions before him, he had a tendency to turn the tables on them. So in the words of Shakespeare, they found themselves hoist on their own petard. But when they give that up, they are intent on not simply discrediting him, they are intent on killing him. And part of their opposition to Jesus, as we've already noticed, is this whole question of the Sabbath. The Jews and the religious leaders' obsession with the Sabbath. Jesus was appearing to be a Sabbath breaker. And this was of great concern to the Jewish religious leaders. Now, we talked last week about why that was the case. 
And we said that when you take a look at their unique historical circumstances, it's not hard to understand why the Jewish religious leaders and scribes were so concerned about the Sabbath. Not just the Sabbath, but really all of the law, but the Sabbath in particular became the focus of their attention. It is because they had been an oppressed people for so long. And when you live in that kind of an environment, there is always that tendency to conform to the pattern of the world around you, to capitulate, to just give in, to come to the conclusion that it's just not worth fighting anymore. And so you sort of throw in the towel. And it was the scribes and the Pharisees who realized that if they did it, then the Jewish nation would cease to be what it was called to be, and that was a light to enlighten the nations. And so they had drawn a line in the sand. They would said there were certain areas that were a no-go zone for them. They would not, under any circumstances, compromise or capitulate. And one of these issues was the Sabbath. So they were motivated by a noble purpose, a noble cause. But the problem, of course, was that they began to split hairs. Uh, what was intended to be a blessing, they turned into a burden with all of these added restrictions, man-made laws that they layered on top of God's laws. And that's what so upset Jesus. And because he refused to abide by their interpretation of the law, they desired to first discredit him and then ultimately to kill him. And a lot of their ire was focused on this whole issue of how Jesus refused to abide by their understanding of the Sabbath. This was not, incidentally, the only occasion when that was the case. It was here in John chapter 5, but it was in all four of the Gospels we find that Jesus, on more than one occasion, violated the law or the Sabbath as they understood it. In Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, first chapter of that Gospel, we're told that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever on the Sabbath. He also did something else on that same day. He healed a demon-possessed man who showed up at the synagogue. Now, according to the Jewish scribes, that was a violation of the Sabbath. Nevertheless, right here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus was doing it. On Mark chapter 3, we're told that Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. Again, in the synagogue, we know it was the Sabbath because they were in the synagogue. It was the day of worship, and Jesus heals this man with a withered hand. Now, what's particularly interesting on that occasion is that we're told that they knew that the man, that is, the Jewish religious leaders knew that the man with the withered hand was showing up for worship that day, and they said they watched Jesus carefully to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. It almost sounds like a setup so that they might have some cause, it says, to accuse him. Now, did Jesus heal the man with a withered hand? Well, what do you think? Of course he did. He had compassion on the man. But again, he did it in a way that confounded even his enemies. We're told that Jesus simply told the man to stretch out his hand, and it was immediately restored. I love that because it's hard to claim that Jesus had performed any act. Jesus never even touched the man. He simply spoke, and there was no violation of the law for speaking on the Sabbath. But nevertheless, they were out there conspiring, looking for a reason, you see, to somehow have a cause against Jesus. In John chapter 9, there was a man who was born blind. 
Jesus and his disciples came upon the man, and the first question out of the disciples' mouth was this, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents, this man was born blind so that God might be glorified. And then Jesus did what? He proceeded to heal the man on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 13, we have the account of Jesus healing a crippled woman in the synagogue. Now, on all of these occasions, it's an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy on Jesus' part. He's healing people who are afflicted. But as we're going to see, this was not the only thing that Jesus did on the Sabbath. There was another occasion in which Jesus' disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath because they were going through the fields of grain and breaking off the heads of grain because they were hungry on the Sabbath and they were eating it and they were accused for this. The point being is that Jesus over and over again, at least according to the interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees, violated the Sabbath. And they were intent on killing him as a consequence. I pointed out last week that it's important for us, again, to have some sense of sympathy for the scribes and the Pharisees. They were trying to hold the line. They were trying to be salt and light in the world. And we said that's the calling that we have as Christians. We are called to be salt and light in the world. We talked about the primary purpose of salt is what? a preservative in the ancient world. In an age before refrigeration, salt was rubbed into meat to stem the tide of decay and putrefaction. And Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And the question was asked by the Lord, what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? What happens if we cease to be salt and light in the world? Well, we know what happens. The world becomes a dark place and the world decays and dies, spiritually, morally, and ultimately physically. And the Pharisees understood that. That's why they wanted to hold the line. And I said, there is a sense in which you and I need to hold the line as well. So this raises a question that I want us to explore a little bit today. How are we as Christians to regard the Sabbath? I mean, after all, it is one of the commandments, isn't it? How many of you would agree that keeping the Ten Commands is a pretty good idea? I think for the most part, we would agree. If, if most societies would live by just the precepts of the commandments, we would have a much better world. Well, that's exactly what many Christians argue. Many Christians say that we have violated the Sabbath itself. You probably all met at one point or another somebody who's a member of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, Seventh-day Adventists are not a cult. They're not like the Jehovah's Witnesses who, or the Mormons. You know, we're seeing the JWs everywhere in Charleston. I don't know if you noticed. They're on every corner. They have a little free Bible study stand. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, that is a cult. The Mormons, likewise, are a cult. Seventh-day Adventists are not. For the most part, they are orthodox. They would be able to stand up and profess the creed just as we do every single Sunday. But where they differ from us is that they are absolutely convinced that we have violated the Ten Commandments by worshiping not on Sabbath, on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, but on Sunday. And that's why they're called Seventh-day Adventists. They worship on Sabbath, that, on the Sabbath, on Saturday. That is their primary day of worship. So you'll see as you go by a Seventh-day Adventist church, there's one out there on 17 as you're going down toward Buford on the right-hand side. You'll notice that they are packed out on Saturdays. And hardly any activity on Sunday. 
And it's because they take seriously this idea of the Sabbath. And there are other Christians that are like this as well. They regard the Sabbath as something that is binding upon all Christians. What's their argument for this? Well, they have a number of arguments. The first is that they say that the Sabbath was something that was ordained by God in creation. And because it was established by God in creation, like marriage, it is therefore binding upon all people in all times. You'll recall that the book of Genesis says that God created in six days. First day, second day, so forth. And after each successive act of creation, God blessed what he had made. But then we're told that when he got to the sixth day, he looked upon what he had made and he said, it is good, it is very good. And on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. He rested. He rested. And the seventh day of the week is what? Saturday. Sunday, I know this doesn't seem like this because we're accustomed to weekends, but Sunday is the first day of the week. So they rested, God rested on that seventh day, and many people would argue that that is why we should acknowledge the Sabbath as binding upon all people. They also point out that the Sabbath ordinance was reiterated later on in the book of Deuteronomy in the Ten Commandments. It is one of the Ten Commandments. Remember, to keep holy... The what? The Sabbath day. What's the Sabbath day? It's Saturday. It's the last day of the week. They point out also that Jesus, as a Jew, kept the Sabbath. Now, mind you, he didn't keep it quite the way the scribes and the Pharisees did. But one of these, you know, we we noticed that Jesus was constantly healing people. And one of the things that that teaches us is that Jesus was active in worship on the Sabbath. He was going into the synagogue is where all of these acts of healing and mercy took place. So we know that Jesus did, as a good Jew, abide by the Sabbath. He even read from the scroll on one occasion in his hometown from on the Sabbath. So they argue that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It was reiterated in the Ten Commandments. Jesus himself kept the Sabbath. And they would argue that the Sabbath continues today. Now, some of them would amend this somewhat, and they would say that as Christians, we still honor the Sabbath. We just don't honor it on Saturday. We honor it on Sunday. But we should honor it as a day of rest. We should refrain from all activity on the Sabbath. How many of you have ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? Well, if you know the story of Eric Little, you know that he was a Scottish athlete, He was part of the British Olympic team in the 1924 Paris Games. And uh, he was expected to be Britain's lead runner, to lead them to victory in these Olympic Games. They had a very strong Olympic team. But Eric Little was considered to be the shining light. But when he got to Paris, he discovered that the qualifying heat for the 100-meter run was going to be on a Sunday. And he was a man who believed that Sunday was the Christian Sabbath. And so he refused to run on that day. And you know the story is there was a great deal of pressure that was brought against him. The Olympic Committee tried to persuade him to do this. His fellow teammates tried to persuade him to do this. They brought in the Prince of Wales to try to put pressure on him to do it. And you all know that Eric Little very heroically said he would not do it. And said he ran a completely different race still won the race, still set the world record, and still led the British people to victory in the 1924 Paris Games. But the whole movie is about a young man who refuses to compromise on this whole issue of the Sabbath. 
Well, how are you and I to regard the Sabbath? The Jews took it seriously. Are we Christians to abide by the Sabbath in the same way? When we do something else on the Sabbath, when you play golf on the Sabbath, when you go to a concert on the Sabbath, are you breaking one of the commandments? Most of us would shudder at the thought of of stealing, which is a violation of the Ten Commandments. Many of us would shudder at the thought of committing adultery, which is a violation of the Ten Commandments. But how many of us think about violating the Sabbath as a violation of the Ten Commandments? How are we Christians to regard the Sabbath? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to answer a number of other questions first. To begin with, we need to ask when the Sabbath was instituted by God. And second, we need to ask the question, for whom was the Sabbath instituted by God? And when you begin to answer those questions, all of a sudden, things become a little clearer for us. We discover that we are not under law so much as we are under grace. So, first thing to say is this. Even though some, like the Seventh-day Adventists, will tell you that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, actually, if you look closely at the Bible, you'll discover that it is not a creation ordinance. Yes, it is true, God in Genesis rested on the seventh day. But what is particularly interesting is that God gave no commandment to Adam and Eve that they were to do the same. No commandment whatsoever to Adam and Eve that they were to mark off that particular day as something special or unique. It was a day of rest, and in it, God set a pattern for a work week. But there is no commandment between Adam and Moses for anyone, listen to this, to keep the Sabbath. So when is the Sabbath instituted? The Sabbath is first instituted under the old Mosaic covenant in Exodus. That is to say, God led his people out of their captivity in Egypt by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched arm. He led them out into the wilderness. You know the story. They came through the Red Sea. God delivered them from the power of Pharaoh. And eventually, he gave them his law on Mount Sinai, and that is the first reference to the keeping of the Sabbath. So for generations, between Adam, the first man and woman, all the way up to Moses, and we're talking thousands and thousands of years, there was no requirement for anyone to keep the Sabbath. It only happens when you get to the Ten Commandments being given from Mount Sinai. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know the history of the Jewish people, you know that they fell on hard times, You know that they were carried off into captivity in Babylon. That's one of the things that we pointed out. We said that they were an oppressed people. I misspoke last week, apparently, when I said that as Americans, we don't understand this because we've never experienced it. And I have been inundated with people all week who reminded me that that's not true, that Southern Americans know exactly what it is like to be invaded, to be conquered, and to be an oppressed people. So I stand corrected. I guess as a Pennsylvanian, I never quite looked at it that way, but (laughs) nevertheless. But they were a conquered and an oppressed people. They were carried off into captivity. But eventually, they would return to Jerusalem. And this took place during the time of a man by the name of Nehemiah. 
And Nehemiah was the man who was responsible for rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And he led the people in a service of rededication. They were going to renew their commitment to God. They had fallen on hard times. They'd been carried off into a pagan land. But now they had been allowed to return to Jerusalem once again. They were going to rebuild the city. And they were going to rededicate themselves to God. And in this service of rededication, one of the things that Nehemiah talks about is the history of God and his people. Yes, how God led them out of their captivity in Egypt, how he led them through the wilderness, how he provided manna from heaven, and how he guided them with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And he said it was there that God gave them his law, marking them out as his special people. Now that's significant because what Nehemiah is doing centuries later is he is tying the giving of the law to that particular moment in history. That is to say, the giving of the Sabbath ordinance to that particular moment in history and to that particular people. Which means that the Sabbath was given to the Jews. It was not given to any other nation. It was not given to any other people. It was to mark them out as God's chosen people. Now, are we Jews today? No. I venture to say that everyone in this room today, even though you're a Christian, you are a Gentile. So if this was an ordinance that was given for the Jews at a particular point in history, the question remains, is it binding for us? And what I want to suggest to you is that it is not binding to us. Somebody said, that's a great relief for those of you who have a tea time this afternoon. (laughs) So this is not an ordinance that was established in creation and binding on all people for time immemorial. Now, what about the charge, well, that Jesus kept the Sabbath? Well, that is true. Jesus did keep the Sabbath. But Jesus kept the Sabbath because he came into this world and submitted himself to the law. The book of Galatians said, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. You'll recall that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist, in fact, you're going to hear a little bit more about John the Baptist today in the sermon when Bill delivers it. You'll recall that John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching a message of repentance and baptizing people for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. So everyone that went out to John went out there because they were cut to the quick. They recognized that they were guilty and they wanted forgiveness as an outward and visible sign of this inward and spiritual forgiveness. They went down into the waters of the Jordan and they were baptized by him. And all of a sudden, Jesus showed up. Well, here's the question. Does Jesus need to be forgiven for anything? We're told that Jesus was like us in every respect except for one. He never sinned. And John the Baptist recognized this because when Jesus showed up on the banks of the Jordan and he went down to submit to baptism, John said, no, you, we, this, is, this is wrong. It should be the other way around. You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus said, this is to fulfill all righteousness. What that means is that even though Jesus was not like us, Jesus came down and willingly associated with us in our brokenness and our fallenness so that he might raise us up to the new life of Christ. So yes, Jesus did abide by the law 
because he came and submitted himself to the law as a Jew. But as we're going to see, Jesus regarded himself as being greater than the law. So he did this, but he did this for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was so that we might be redeemed from the power of the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I have not come to destroy the law. I have come to do what? To fulfill it. Now, I mentioned earlier that most of the acts that Jesus performed on the Sabbath were acts of mercy, acts of healing. But I said there was one exception. And that's what I want us to take a look at right now. So if you have your Bibles, turn to, me, to Matthew chapter 12 for just a moment. And I want to show you something. Not only what Jesus does here, but I want to show you Jesus' response to the charge that he had broken the Sabbath. It's Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, and I love the fact that the Pharisees saw it. I mean, where are they? I mean, they're hiding out in the sheaves of wheat, just waiting for somebody to blow it. I think that's the way many people think God looks at us. He's just, he's just waiting for us to mess up. But that's not the case at all. God is much more gracious than these religious leaders. At any rate, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look. I, I've said on, in the past, there are two types of, of people in the world. And one of those types are pouncers. They're the ones that are always looking to pounce on somebody else. Well, here they are. They say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read that David did what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, it's always a danger to get into a Bible quiz with Jesus. <laughs> He's going to know the text much better than anybody else. And that's exactly what he does. He immediately calls them on the carpet and he says, do you not remember? Do you not remember? And of course, they're beginning to remember and they're thinking themselves, oh, drat. Jesus could have stopped right there, but he didn't. He goes on to say something that was volatile. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. There is something greater than the sacrifices. There is something greater than the law here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And then here it is, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There is one who is greater than the Sabbath. There is one who is greater than all your rules and all your regulations. There is one who is the Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of all. And all of the commandments, all of the restrictions, all of the requirements find their fulfillment in him. That was the claim that Jesus was making. What does that mean for you and for me? It means that the coming of Christ has freed believers from the law. 
We are no longer bound by the law in the same way that the Jews were. Now, that does not mean that we can live any way we want. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it does mean that the law and its requirements are not placed on us in the way that they were placed upon the Jews. Take a look at this passage from Colossians. It's Colossians chapter 2. So go toward the end of your Bible. You'll come to Colossians. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. It's Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. We'll start at verse 6, let's just say. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because one of the marks and the signs of inclusion within the covenant community for Jews was what? The outward mark of circumcision. And what Paul says is that you and I have been circumcised, but not in the flesh, but in our hearts. By virtue of our faith with Christ. We don't have to be circumcised outwardly. We are circumcised in our heart. A circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling, here's the critical verse, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So everything that the Jews had to do in order, as it were, to get into God's good graces, as they understood it, all of that has been done for us by Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law's demands perfectly and nailed all of its requirements to the cross so that whoever believes in him and trusts in him for the forgiveness of their sins, they have fulfilled all that is required by the law. That's grace, not a burden, but a blessing. And that is why Paul reiterates over and over again, you are saved by grace through faith, not by works. It's not going to be by getting circumcised. It's not going to be by keeping all the kosher laws. It's not going to be by keeping the Sabbath. It is by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who on the cross said, it is done, it is done, it is all done. What a relief. What a relief. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. It's interesting to note that in the early church, in the book of Acts, you know that Acts is the story of the early church, that the Sabbath is only mentioned nine times in the entire history of the early church in the book of Acts. Once it is referred to, 
as a Sabbath day's journey. We're told that Jesus' disciples returned from the Mount of Olives, which was a Sabbath day's journey. So it wasn't really talking about the Sabbath, just what Jews understood to be a Sabbath day's journey, a length of time or a, or a distance. And the only other references in the book of Acts to the Sabbath are to the fact that Paul went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. But there is not one single reference in the book of Acts to the early believers being required to keep the Jewish Sabbath. Not one reference to it. Now that's interesting because you'll recall that the first church council was held in Jerusalem because Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas had gone out into the Gentile world and they preached the gospel to people and were told that the Gentiles had responded joyfully to this message of grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation in Christ. But there were some in Jerusalem who were troubled by this because Paul was preaching that as long as they believed in Christ, that was all that was required. He wasn't requiring circumcision. He wasn't requiring Sabbath observance or any of those things. And so a church council was held to determine whether or not, in order to become a Christian, a person had to first become a Jew. And what did that church council conclude? That no. That Jews were saved the way the Gentiles were saved. Some of the most gracious words ever come out of Peter's mouth. He doesn't say, we know that the Gentiles are saved the same we, way we are saved. He says, we know that we are saved the same way the Gentiles are saved. And it's not by circumcision. It's not by the keeping of the law. It's by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note that on that occasion, there was no reference whatsoever. There was a great deal of talk about circumcision, not one reference whatsoever to the keeping of the Jewish Sabbath. So it was a commandment for them at a particular time and a particular place. A new covenant has been established in Jesus Christ. The keeping of the Sabbath was one of the signs of the old covenant. But the old has passed away. All things have been made new. What does that mean for us? It means that our Sabbath is when we stop striving to earn God's favor and we start resting in Jesus Christ. That is the keeping of the Sabbath for Christians. So if you want to go out and have a tea time on the Sabbath, have at it. You are not under law, you are under grace. Now, does that mean that as Christians we do not honor a specific day of the week? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Obviously, you're all here for a reason on this particular day. But for Christians, it's not the old Jewish Sabbath with all of its laws and restrictions. We are freed from that. We're freed from that. You don't have to earn God's favor. You don't have to work to please God. He's not out there like a pouncer, like the Pharisees, waiting to see you mess up so that he can zap you. He has sent his son into this world because he loves you so much that he mounted the arms of the cross and took the penalty that you and I deserve upon himself that you and I might be free. The only thing that is required is for us to place our trust in him. It's all been done for us. And you can rest in that confidence. That is to keep the Sabbath. But nevertheless, the early Christians recognized that honoring God on a particular day of the week is important. But as Christians, we no longer honor on the last day of the week, but the first day of the week. Now, it's obvious as to why we do that. It's because it was on the first day of the week that what? Jesus rose from the dead. 
I'll be honest with you, I think this is one of the most powerful evidences for the truth of the resurrection that you will find anywhere. That the early Jews, remember the early Christians, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, all of those guys were Jews. They've been raised to keep holy the Sabbath. And all of a sudden they stopped worshiping on the Sabbath and they began to worship on the first day of the week. What could have persuaded any devout Jew who had been steeped in this tradition to violate the Sabbath and start worshiping on another day of the week only something on the level of a bodily resurrection? And yet that is exactly what the early Christians began to do. They began to worship on that first day of the week. If you think about that first resurrection morning, one of the things you realize is that it was an eventful day. The Jews were not allowed to do any work, but that first day of the week was a day that was filled with activity. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. We're told that Jesus ascended for the first time on the first day of the week. Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room and bestowed his peace on them on the first day of the week. Jesus broke bread with the Emmaus disciples on that first day of the week. Seven weeks after the resurrection, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles on Pentecost, which was the first day of the week. And Jesus appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos and inspired him to write the book of Revelation. And we're told that it was on the first day of the week. John said, I was on the Lord's day in the Spirit. And that is why... Right down to the present day, Christians abandoned the Sabbath because with all of its laws and restrictions, they were freed from that. But they began to celebrate the first day of the week, that day when Christ won the victory for us over the powers of sin and death. Now, some will say, well, this is the Christian Sabbath. This is not the Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of absolute rest. It is a day in which we are under the law. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. People will refer to it as that, but it is not. Sunday is the Lord's day. It's the day when he won the victory for you and for me. And so we celebrate it, but not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but out of a sense of celebration and thanksgiving for what he has done on our behalf. This is our day, the first of days. Now, you ask the question, well, how then should we celebrate the Lord's Day? What should it be like if the Jews observe the Sabbath by not doing anything? How should we as Christians observe the Lord's Day, that first day of the week? Let me suggest to you a number of things. First of all, we should do it with joy. This should not be a somber day. The Lord's Day is a day of joy. It is a day of victory. Every Sunday, the prayer book says, is a miniature feast of the resurrection. That's why Sunday, every Sunday, is a feast of Easter. This is why when you go through Lent and you have to give up all those things for Lent, like you give up chocolate and you give up alcohol and all those things, that you, on Sunday you get a reprieve. <laughs> Did you know that? You get a reprieve on Sunday. Why do you get a reprieve on Sunday? Because it's the feast of the resurrection. Jesus has won the victory. So it should be a day that is characterized by joy, by happiness, by activity. Jesus was active on the first day of the week. We should be active on the first day of the week. What kind of activity should we engage in? Well, first of all, we should engage in worship. Why? Because it's his day. 
It's the Lord's day. Worship should be a priority. And when we come into worship, we should be prepared to witness, to bear witness to who Jesus Christ is. If you're doing anything on a Sunday, even if you're out there on the golf course in the afternoon, you just isn't an opportunity to witness to what this day is all about, to whose day it is. And it should be a day that is characterized by expectation. Listen, folks, I don't know how many of you have been to church already, but those of you who have not, go into church, prepare your hearts, pray that God will speak to you, and go with expectation that he will. Go with the expectation that the Lord of glory is going to show up today. And when God shows up, folks, you never know what's going to happen. So our day should be a day characterized by joy, by activity, worship, witness. It should be a day that is filled with expectation. At the beginning of this class, I prayed that we would observe Sunday as the first of days. I said, Lord, teach thy people to love thy house the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. What you have done for us, help us to keep always thy day the first of days. We should keep Sunday the first of days in our lives. Not because God is going to get us if we don't, but in gratitude for what he has done for us. Sunday for Christians should be a priority. Worship should be a priority for you and for me. It's a sign that we understand what great cost Christ has paid and what a great victory he has won. That's challenging in the present day. I'll be the first one to admit it. There are a number of challenges that we face as Christians when it comes to Sunday observance, to Sunday worship. Now, again, you're not under law. You're under grace. So you're not breaking the commandment if you don't come. But it should be a priority for you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Jesus, on one occasion, was um, accused by the Pharisees for consulting or uh, consorting with a woman who was a known woman of the town. She came into this Pharisee's house and she began to wipe Jesus' feet with her tears and to anoint him. And they said, um, one of the Pharisees said, well, if he knew who she was and what she's all about, he wouldn't consort with her. He wouldn't allow her to do what she's doing right now at the table. And Jesus, hearing them, turned and he said, those who have been forgiven much love much. If you realize you've been forgiven much, you will love much. You will long to come into the Lord's house, not because you have to, but you are so grateful for what he has done on your behalf. And you'll come with joy and you'll come with anticipation. The challenges we face, of course, is that we are no longer living in the world of Christendom, folks. We are living in an increasingly secularized world. You know, there was a time when it wasn't just Chick-fil-A that was closed on Sunday. Everything was closed on Sunday. How many of you remember those days? There was no second Sunday on King Street or anything like that. Because it was the Lord's Day. Well, we're not living in that world anymore. And so some people will say, well, why can't we just worship on another day? Well, you can worship on another day. 
But Sunday's an opportunity for us to witness to the resurrection. Somebody might ask, well, why is Sunday so important to you? Here's your opportunity to tell them why. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on this day. He paid the price for my sin and won the victory for me. And he lives within my heart and he can live within yours too. A great opportunity for us to witness. Here's another challenge we face. We live busy lives. I mean, how many parents have to get their kids to soccer practice on a Sunday? Or they have a swim match on a Sunday. And it's increasingly difficult because activity every single day of the week. And so it becomes hard. And it's true, we're not under obligation. This is a service of perfect freedom. But when you think about all that Christ did for us, can't we give him a few hours on Sunday just as a way of saying thank you? But it's so hard when we live such busy lives. Now, somebody might say, well, I can worship God on another day of the week. And I could do it in a different way. Well, that's true. But remember, this is whose day? It's his day. That's like saying, well, it's my birthday. And your wife says, I'm taking you shopping today. Most men, if they're sports fanatics, that's the last thing they want to do. This is Jesus' day. Shouldn't we celebrate it the way that he would prefer to have it celebrated? It's his day. Here's the other challenge we face, and that is technology. I never in a million years, I've said this before, dreamed that I would end up being a televangelist. Just never. I said the only one of us of the clergy team that has the hair for a televangelist is Bill Christian. I mean, so, so how did this happen? We've all become televangelists. And of course, it's because of the pandemic. And we're grateful for the technology that kept us connected during a very difficult time in all our lives. So we're grateful for the technology. Moreover, we have found that there are people all over the world where they're finding it difficult to find traditional, conservative, orthodox churches. They are able to worship with us from a distance. Mark Bouton told me that when he went home to Maine, he couldn't find a church that preached the gospel anywhere. The burned over district, as historians used to call it. He said so he would tune in to St. Philip's and be refreshed. And we hear from people on a weekly basis about that. So we can be thankful for technology, but you know it's a two-edged sword. Because you get into the habit of just watching church as opposed to participating in church, don't you? I mean, on a cold morning like this, it's hard to get up and, and get going. It's a whole lot easier to remain in your pajamas with a mimosa or a Bloody Mary and watch St. Philip's. <laughs> now you're laughing and it's a nervous laughter because... <laughs> but I want you to understand something. You never grow in the Christian life. You never grow spiritually mature unless you are in community. It's the way God hardwired us. And so the author of Hebrews says, we are not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Of course, there will be those days when you cannot make it. You may be traveling. Of course, there will be those times when you're ill and you cannot come to church. And you can take advantage, but don't make it a habit. 
Come to church on Sunday. Come with joy. Come with expectation. It's your family. Come rejoice in the victory that Christ has won for you. Don't come out of a sense of obligation. Come out of a sense of thanksgiving. And let's see what the Lord will do in our lives. So let's pray again. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day the first of days. Holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen.